You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Eighty-five years ago, an art exhibition was held in Munich, Germany. It was truly one of a kind and showcased the work of 120 artists. Many of these were internationally renowned modernists. The show was attended by one million people in its first six weeks. But this landmark event is not something to be celebrated. My name is Amanda Mata, and this is Art of History. Normally on the show, I bring you an hour or so of meandering context on a work of art that can tell us a story from the past, and we're still going to follow that format roughly today. But we're going to do things a bit differently. I wanted to make this episode not because I thought it would be fun. Uh, In fact, I've struggled to research it, and I have put off recording it because talking about this particular art show is really heavy and really difficult. We are talking about the Degenerate Art Exhibition of 1937, organized at the behest of one Adolf Hitler. Why did I decide to put myself, and now you, through this? Well, a friend sent me some tweets a while back. I know, tweets. This is kind of an odd place to start. But these tweets used the term degenerate art to describe art that the tweet author apparently deemed aesthetically subpar. And the first time I saw this language being employed in this way, I thought it was a bit odd, and maybe as if the person didn't know the history of the term they were using, but I've seen the word degenerate used a few more times since then, all by different people, all as a way of extolling the virtues of traditional art and culture, quote-unquote traditional, uh, usually over something more modern and kind of nebulous and something that people struggle to understand. I've even seen the term used to describe the art currently being made by all of those AI generators online, which I think is really cool. Um, But the term degenerate being applied to them, that that I think needs some unpacking. And this is this is where I started to get a bit worried because language is powerful, especially when it's connected to forms of expression. Labeling forms of expression in modern culture, in past cultures, as degenerate simply because you don't like them or agree with them or think that they're uh, less worthy than other forms of expression, that's troublingly close to some very harmful ideologies. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, we're going to get into it. 
We will take a walk back in time today to where discussions of aesthetics took a very dark and violent turn when this term degenerate was employed in really, I mean literally, a weaponized way. It's not going to be necessarily fun, uh, but I do think it's necessary because obviously those who don't learn from history are in fact doomed to repeat it. If you are interested in something a little bit more lighthearted, uh, just a quick plug, over on my Patreon this week I am going to be recording a talk that I gave last weekend at the uh, Pennsylvania Tea Festival. This is also not really tied to the subject of this show very closely. Um, it is about the royal history of tea and tea time, um, but there are some fun slides that do take a walk through art history that I will be posting um, along with it. So if you would like to go check out my Patreon, that should be posted um, within the, the next week of when I'm posting this episode. My Patreon is Mata of Fact. It'll be linked in the show notes. And for today's episode, even though we're not strictly honing in on one particular work of art, I will still be posting some images um, over on the show Instagram, that is Art of History Podcast. If you have a minute while you're there, please give the show a follow, and if you think art education like this is important for understanding the past and our present, um, please, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show wherever you're listening. Um, but mostly, if you could hop over to Apple Podcasts and do all of that there, it would help me out much more. <laughs> so thank you in advance. Without further ado, let's drop ourselves into history, where modern art was flourishing in the first decades of the 20th century around the world, but particularly in Germany. Art on the whole had been shifting towards the secular and the commercial rather than the sacred and the unattainable for a good century or two by this point, and artists were beginning to identify as creatives more than they were as craftsmen. This new type of expressionistic work denoted a, quote, revolutionary divergence from traditional artistic values to ones based on the personal perceptions and feelings of the artists. These artists were largely known as the avant-garde. Under the Weimar government of the 1920s, Germany had emerged as a leading center of the avant-garde. It was the birthplace of expressionism in painting and sculpture, of the atonal music compositions of Schoenberg, for example. You also had the jazz-influenced work of Paul Hindemith and Kurt Weill, films such as Robert Vine's The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu also brought expressionism to cinema. In the visual arts, innovations like fauvism, cubism, uh, dada, and surrealism, these were following some earlier trends in post-impressionism and symbolism. These, these were not universally appreciated. Many of these artistic movements were born out of some form of social ideology. Dada, for example, was an effort to intentionally destroy traditional values and to create a new, irrational type of art to replace the old. Cubism was a new way for artists to represent their physical reality by depicting objects using multiple vantage points at once. All of these movements were largely responses to a rapidly changing and chaotic world, which was marred by more and more violent conflicts. World War I was a big catalyst for many avant-garde artists to seek something more, something more meaningful out of their craft. 
But the majority of people in Germany, as elsewhere, did not particularly care for this new art at first. Many resented it as an elitist, morally suspect, and incomprehensible movement. For some people, this type of art seemed extremely threatening. It, it took away the security they felt under the older way of doing things. And of course, at the same time, this artistic rejection of traditional authority and these new individualistic values coming forth was exhilarating. So you had kind of these two opposing worldviews happening. Established museums did collect and exhibit this radical new artwork. Um, we will get into some of the specific artists associated with this time at the end in a little bit more detail. Um, but just to give you a few names, these artists included Max Beckman, um, Ernst Ludwig Kirchner was a big one, Paul Klee, um, many, many others. And like I said, we'll do a little bit more detailed um, deep diving at the end of the episode. And these artists got introduced to an international audience this way. It also gained the attention of a rising political faction, you might know them as the Nazi party. This modernist art kind of clashed with the Nazi ideals. Um, they had this belief in a quote-unquote Germanic spirit, um, which was defined as mystical, rural, um, inherently moral, carrying this ancient wisdom into the modern day. Um, they viewed themselves as noble in the face of this, this tragic destiny that, that Germany was running into. And the visual arts became a way for the Nazis to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with ideals that they did and did not want in their new vision of the world. A man named Paul Schultz Nomberg, he was an architect and a Nazi activist, supplied much of the basis for Adolf Hitler's belief that it was classical Greece and the Middle Ages who were supposed to be the source of quote-unquote good or Aryan art. In 1928, um, Nomberg published his book Kunst und Rasse, or Art and Race, which summarized the worldview that ended up underlying the Nazis' campaign against what they would eventually call degenerate art. This idea explicitly connected the so-called racial science of Hitler's worldview to the art world. It established a really disturbing and derogatory connection between artistic expression to mental and physical disabilities, both of which were supposed to be eradicated from Hitler's ideal racial community. According to this perspective, all artworks inherently mirrored the racial qualities of the artists that created them. This meant that artists who were considered racially healthy would therefore produce art that upheld the timeless ideals of classical beauty um, and the further advancement of the German race as a whole, which Hitler so desired. By extension, individuals with mental or physical quote-unquote defects were thought to be capable of only producing art that mirrored their deficiencies. And obviously I'm quoting and I do not believe all of this, just putting that disclaimer out there right now. I have a picture of the work Kunst und Rasse over on the Instagram um, where you can see that the author juxtaposed photos of dis disabled individuals with modernist art to demonstrate that they were both ultimately the outcome of negative hereditary traits and were symptomatic of a racial degeneration, um, which obviously the Nazis thought had to be dealt with. So this is visually reinforcing the ideas of modernism in art as a sickness. 
the Nazis saw the presence of this art in the modern world as a way of degrading the German race. Um, and by extension, then the promotion of modern art could only serve the interests of those seeking to undermine their mission. So the chief culprits, according to the Nazis, were thought to be Jewish art dealers and critics who, quote, used their allegedly disproportionate influence to harm the community, aided by wayward Germans seduced by their money and influence. This isn't where the theory of degeneracy in art gets started. Um, the, the theory was called Erntartung, um, and it had been coined in 1892 by the critic and author Max Nordau. Nordau, for his part, was drawing upon the writings of a criminologist who had written in 1876, um, attempting to prove that there were quote-unquote born criminals whose personality traits could be detected through scientifically measuring abnormal physical characteristics. Um, so Nordau was extending this to critique modern art as early as the 1890s. He explained that modern artists had become so corrupted and enfeebled by modern life that they had lost the self-control needed to produce coherent works. He attacked the aesthetic movement in English literature and described the mysticism of the symbolist movement in French literature as a product of mental pathology. Explaining the painterliness of Impressionism as the sign of a diseased visual cortex, he decried modern degeneracy in art while simultaneously praising traditional German culture. Despite the fact that Nordau was Jewish and a key figure in the Zionist movement, his theory of artistic degeneracy was seized upon by the Nazis during the Weimar Republic as a rallying point for their anti-Semitic and racist demand for Aryan purity in art. Adolf Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Germany in 1933 um, after the Nazis seized power. And this, I think you can probably tell, is not going to be a comprehensive look of how that came about. Lots of resources out there if you would like to know more. Um, but we are specifically going to focus on what he did to the art world at this time. Almost immediately, over 20,000 works of art were deemed degenerate, and these were removed from German state-owned museums by the Nazi government. The new government organized a series of quote-unquote condemnation exhibitions across the Reich. These would ultimately serve as the blueprint for the larger 1937 Munich exhibition, which is the subject of our episode today. These episodes had titles such as, in English, I'm not even going to attempt the German, I apologize. Um, these were called Chamber of Terror, Art in the Service of Subversion, and of course, Degenerate Art. These exhibitions took place in different areas around the country, but they were united by a common theme. They all denounced works of art which were interpreted as an attack against the German people and as symptoms of a cultural decline associated with liberal democracy. The exhibitions argued that this degenerate art had been nurtured by politicians who had betrayed Germany by signing the Versailles Treaty, which was the peace treaty which ended the First World War. Um, this treaty, they saw it as condemning Germans to a life in servitude to outside forces, um, and the politicians behind it, they saw as promoting destructive social and cultural trends as a result. 
Many of the artworks displayed in these early degenerate art exhibitions would later be confiscated uh, again in 1937, recorded in an inventory, and displayed in the Munich Exhibition of Degenerate Art. The V&A Museum, the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, holds the only document detailing the full extent of the Nazis' systematic purging of German museums um, and public collections from 1937 on. The document was created at the heart of the Nazi regime by Josef Goebbels' Ministry of Propaganda, and it records the confiscation of more than 16,000 works of art, which the Nazis deemed degenerate. On June 30th, 1937, Goebbels, who was the Reich Minister for Propaganda and Enlightenment, authorized the director of the Reich Chamber for Culture, Adolf Ziegler, to select and confiscate paintings and sculptures from public collections for a major exhibition on degenerate art. In true authoritarian bureaucratic style, Ziegler uh, took it upon himself to assemble a commission. This included the author Wolfgang Wilrich. I'm so sorry, German pronunciation is not my forte. Um, Wilrich had written a book called The Cleansing of the Temple of Art, which was a major inspiration for Goebbels. This book essentially provided the blueprint for the selection of artworks which were to be confiscated, taken out of museums and galleries. The book was also a vicious attack against modernist artists and the art establishment which had enabled their assault against the quote-unquote German spirit. As the title of the book suggests, Wilrich called for a cleansing of the Temple of Art, which he argued should be reserved for art designed to promote the well-being of the Nazi community. For this purpose, he provided a list of names of artists whom he specifically deemed guilty of promoting degeneracy and whose work could then fall victim to these confiscations. Over the course of a mere 10 days, Ziegler's commission combed through 32 collections in 23 cities to select works of art which were seen to threaten the new order. These artworks were then shipped to Munich, the capital city of the Nazi uh, movement, and the official city of German art. And there, on July 19th, 1937, the Degenerate Art Exhibition opened. It showcased 740 of the seized paintings, drawings, and sculptures by some 120 artists, and subsequently toured across the Reich in order to educate the uh, public on the art of decay, as it was called. Held within the Archaeological Institute of Munich, the exhibition purported to demonstrate that, quote, modernist tendencies such as abstraction are the result of genetic inferiority and society's moral decline. An explicit parallel, once again, was drawn between modernism and mental illness. Ziegler, after overseeing the confiscation of the works now on display, made the opening address at the exhibition, in which he left no room for doubt as to how the artworks should be interpreted. This was... <laughs> it's tempting to want to mock the Nazis for putting on this exhibition of what would become universally celebrated as groundworking um, pieces of art, um, you know, giving it a bigger platform, but I, I really think the insidious nature of how hard they were going on this messaging at the same time makes it hard to kind of point and laugh at them. I hope that makes sense. Ziegler said, for example, look around you at these monstrosities of insanity, insolence, incompetence, and degeneration. 
Thanks to the Victoria and Albert Museum, we know the exact layout and composition of the exhibit, and we can reconstruct the ideological path down which visitors were led. Museums as storytelling devices are, are very powerful tools, and modern museums make use of some of the same strategies at play here. I'm, I'm going to read you an account of you know the flow that one could take through the degenerate art exhibition. The layout of exhibitions like this is very important, and it's something that museum professionals even today spend a lot of time working on. Um, and that's because it, it really is an invaluable tool for education to, to be able to physically move somebody through a space that corresponds with the narrative that you're trying to tell. Um, an example of this, you know, you can see it at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. Um, to a more questionable extent, the Creation Museum in Kentucky. Um, these are all, you know, for better or for worse, areas where this method is being employed even today. If you were to walk through the Degenerate exhibition in 1937, here is roughly the flow that you would be following. Quote, the journey began with Emile Nolda's Christ and the Sinner, hung in a room devoted to imagery said to violate Christian sensibilities. The second room was devoted to the theme of the revelation of the Jewish, Jewish racial soul, and featured paintings, prints, and drawings by Jewish artists. A prominent example was Rabiner by Marc Chagall. The third room featured nudes, the nature of which was summarized as the, quote, mockery of the German woman as cretin and whore. The same room also featured the anti-war paintings of Otto Dix, which were seen to disrespect the honor of German soldiers and veterans. The room also held an ensemble of Dada art, which was particularly despised by the Nazis for its intentional irrationality. Big, big fans of being rational, the Nazis. <laughs> the Degenerate Art Exhibition did draw large crowds. More than 2 million visitors attended in Munich from July 19th to November 30th, 1937. And then, of course, the show would go on to tour throughout the Reich. Later incarnations of the exhibit contrasted modernist art with paintings and drawings made by patients in a psychiatric hospital in order to hammer home the connection between biological and artistic degeneracy, quote unquote, once again. On the whole, the exhibition focused mainly on German art and artists. However, the Nazis' assault on modern art went much further than that. While 120 artists were exhibited, Works by approximately 1,400 artists, including Henri Matisse and other notable French modernists, were banned from German museums. Other artists in Germany were banned from teaching posts and, in some cases, from painting altogether. To enforce these restrictions, the Gestapo were ordered to inspect certain painters' studios periodically, sometimes even feeling paintbrushes for signs of dampness, which would indicate recent use. Back in the exhibition, it presented works with wall texts, uh, labels, which were intended to inflame the audience's racial and ethnic resentment. These linked the artists represented in the show and their work to physical and mental defects, incitements to class war, attempts to demoralize the German people, and attempts to prop up ethnic minorities as a new quote-unquote racial ideal. Sounds like somebody in the Nazi regime was projecting a little bit there. But this is, this is what they were afraid of, right? 
The label that accompanied Ernst Ludwig Kirchner's Street Berlin, for example, noted that the painting was, quote, purchased with the taxes of German working people by the National Gallery in 1920 for the price of 12,000 German marks. This seemingly high figure, largely due to inflation from the 20s, was intended to further provoke visitors. Kirchner's work, like the one in the Degenerate Art Exhibition, represented the intensity of the metropolis of German cities. Um, these included representations of prostitutes, which were identified by feather headdresses, excessive makeup, and flamboyant walking styles. Despite the fact that Kirchner sympathized with the National Socialist Movement in the 1930s, the Nazis ultimately labeled 770 of his works degenerate, including the one that we just talked about, which was removed from the National Gallery um, and now belongs to the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Another exhibition tactic was to juxtapose degenerate art with pieces which did not violate the Nazis' aesthetic sensibilities. These were artworks from a before time, before what they saw as cultural rot had set in, or artworks that had been composed by artists seen to have resisted the poisonous temptations of modernism. Some of these works would feature in another art exhibition just a short walk away from the degenerate art show. Appropriately named the German Art Exhibition, this show invited visitors to visually compare the best and the worst, so-called, that the art world had to offer. Held literally down the street at the monumental House of German Art, um, this was a very imposing building purpose-built to showcase these works of art uh, which promoted the values of the Nazi regime, this show included paintings and sculptures that were traditional in manner and exalted the blood and soil values of racial purity, militarism, and obedience. The day before the Degenerate Art Exhibition opened its doors to the public, Hitler had officially inaugurated the German Art Exhibition, showcasing those works selected by another commission tasked with, fi with finding the very best that the Reich had to offer. In his opening speech, Hitler made clear the extent to which the art in this exhibition was defined by its stark contrast to the degenerate pieces in the neighboring gallery. He explained that what was on display there had, quote, nothing to do with us. I think it's worth noting here, if, if you didn't already know, that Adolf Hitler was himself an academic painter and an academic reject in the art world. He got rejected from art school. His personal taste in art, quote, ran to the sweet, sentimental, and erotic. His political ambition called for the pseudo-classical and the monumental. He was convinced that art had to become German, that is, to portray the new, vigorous, joyous Germans under National Socialism, before it could be considered good art. He triumphantly announced that, Quote, our modern German state that I with my associates have created has alone brought into existence the conditions for a new, vigorous flowering of art. I find it so interesting that Hitler was really kind of burning the candle at both ends when it came to promoting art that he saw as valuable and denouncing art which he saw as threatening. You might have seen the movie Monuments Men, Tom Hanks' classic. Um, where American servicemen were deployed to recover stolen works of art that the Nazis looted from um, museums all around Europe. These are masterpieces from the medieval ages, especially. 
that is an extension of the ideas that Hitler is um, talking about here, where these um, ideals that are present in those artworks are something that he wanted to be part of his regime. So he is literally attempting to alter the historical record by erasing art that he saw as less worthy and bringing art into the fold, which he saw as exemplary. Instead of paintings denouncing the gruesome and senseless nature of the recent war, the invited guests at the German art exhibition could admire paintings invoking comradeship and heroism. Quote, instead of images of prostitutes, they could appreciate paintings and sculptures celebrating motherhood. Instead of meaningless abstract paintings, here they could enjoy the beauty of naturalistic landscapes. And instead of disturbingly disproportionate sculptures, they could feel inspired by sculptures with, which followed the time-honored principles of antiquity. In his opening speech at the German art exhibition, Hitler also announced a, quote, ruthless war of cleansing against the last elements of our cultural decomposition. When I say that this is a slippery slope into the actual cleansing, which would come a little later in Hitler's regime, I'm I'm not exaggerating. And, and this is why we need to be so careful about, about using this language. Joseph Goebbels, I'm sorry, Josef Goebbels, we're in Germany, decided to use this opportunity to finish his job and clear out the remaining unacceptable artworks that had been missed in his initial sweep. Museums were informed that Adolf Ziegler would now confiscate the, quote, remaining products from our period of decay. This time, the screening process did not have to be rushed, and it aimed to be truly comprehensive. The commission, which now had additional members, visited over 100 museums in 74 cities and confiscated, again, approximately 16,000 works of art. These pieces were shipped to a grain silo uh, where they were inventoried on index cards. The next step was the liquidation of these paintings. If they could not be shown in Germany outside the context of these exhibits that were meant to shame these artists, they could still be sold to generate cold hard cash for the Nazi regime. So despite claiming very loudly and forcefully to despise these works, the Nazis also found ways to extract value from them. The V&A's inventory reveals how this process unfolded. Some of the degenerate works were declared, quote, internationally marketable. These were sold through art dealers trusted to act on behalf of the regime. Some were, quote, exchanged for objects that did not violate the Nazis' aesthetic sensibilities. These would be racially appropriate artworks like those displayed in the German art exhibition. Many of the pieces that were exchanged or sold out of Germany ultimately found new homes in museum collections abroad, where most of them still reside today. But those that could not be liquidated or rehomed were destroyed. In March 1939, the propaganda ministry had around 5,000 artworks burned in a bonfire held in the courtyard of the Berlin Main Fire Department, echoing, I think, obviously, the public book burnings of 1933 um, of books that were considered to be incompatible with Nazi values. Whew. This is tough, guys. <laughs> Um, we can therefore assume that the list in the Victorian Albert Museum was created as a final document providing an overview of the outcome of this cleansing of the Temple of Art. It stands as a memorial for a museum landscape that would really never be the same again. 
the period of liquidation of these artworks officially ended in July 1941. I don't think we can overstate the irony here um, that the Nazi government, <laughs> they were decrying this art as a sign of moral decay, calling it worthless, but they also saw modern art as a source of revenue and a way to obtain much needed foreign currency. For example, um, a work called Valley of the Lot at Vers was removed from a museum in Cologne. In 1939, the Museum of Modern Art purchased this painting from Karl Buchholz, one of four art dealers acting on behalf of the German government. He also worked with his partner, Kurt Valentin, who was a German-Jewish immigrant who had settled in New York after fleeing Germany. Feeling fortunate at having acquired the painting, the director of the MoMA, Alfred H. Barr, uh, Jr., sorry, stressed the continuity of the work within the French tradition, stating that the André Durand painting, far from being radical, is a severely disciplined landscape in a modern classical style derived from Cézanne and Poussin. So even as the Nazis are saying that this work has no place in their regime, they, they seem to not have a problem with it being appreciated elsewhere. Um, so as long as they could get could get something from it. I, I think this is just, I mean, it's disgusting, but it's also very ironic. Once the Germans had confiscated over, I think it was 20,000 works ultimately from German museums, they were transferred to a castle. Um, I, oh gosh, I'm gonna try. A castle in Niederschönshausen, Berlin, um, where other dealers could make use of these holdings and sell the works on um, behalf of the government. Apart from Karl Buchholz, the other dealers implicated in this were named Bernhard Bommer, Hildebrand Gerlitt, and Ferdinand Muller. Upon the Museum of Modern Art's purchase of numerous degenerate works in 1939, their director announced, quote, the only good thing about the exile of such fine works of art from one country is the consequent enrichment of other lands, where cultural freedom still exists. For this last part here, I want to kind of go in, I think I have about four artists that I just want to give you a brief overview of, um, just to give you a, like a case study of, of who was the subject of these targeted attacks on the art world. Um, so we'll start with Paul Klee. Um, Klee was born in Switzerland in 1879. He initially studied music and the classics before turning to art. His abstract designs, watercolors, and paintings, which were rendered in delicately applied colors and shapes, were highly influential to Expressionism, Cubism, and Surrealism on the whole. Klee served in the German army from 1916 to 1918, and in 1921 he began a decade of teaching at the Bauhaus, which was a very influential art school founded in Weimar. By the mid-1930s, Klee was highly established and his work was represented in most German museums as well as internationally. Nazi authorities dismissed Klee from his teaching position at the Dusseldorf Academy in 1933 and he returned to Switzerland. Eventually, more than 130 of his artworks were confiscated from German museums, including one which I have on the Instagram called Around the Fish. <laughs> This is a rather cryptic painting in which a, quote, constellation of free-floating objects and symbols orbit an elaborately detailed fish. This is a piece that did ultimately make its way to the Museum of Modern Art. Um, the Nazis had described Paul Klee's artwork as, quote, insane childish scrawling, but as the MoMA website says, it was precisely these qualities, the emulation of children's art, 
the collage-like approach to building pictures and the resistance to any um, firm interpretation that attracted the surrealists and modernists to Klee's um, works of art. Many of his works were later bought by Swiss museums where they remain today. Another artist I would like to focus on is Max Beckman. Beckman was born in 1884. He was the youngest child of a prosperous flower merchant, and he was initially attracted to art through the style of Rembrandt. He later went on to study at the Weimar Academy, leaving in 1903 and setting off for Paris, where he was influenced by post-impressionism. This he carried into his artistic career, although it evolved into something very like expressionism later on, although he himself uh, rejected that term. In 1933, Beckman was dismissed from his position as a professor in Frankfurt and was later declared degenerate by the Nazi regime. His work was stigmatized as un-German in propaganda, and 10 of his paintings were exhibited in the Degenerate Art Exhibition, including Descent from the Cross, which I also have on the Instagram for you to see. I actually have a, a picture of the painting and then a picture of the way it was laid out in the Degenerate Art Exhibition, so go check that out. This piece had um, originally been purchased in Frankfurt in 1919, only two years after its completion. According to the MoMA, where again this painting now resides, Beckman possibly made Descent from the Cross to answer a challenge posed by curator Gustav Hartmann to create a modern work as powerful as medieval German art, that stuff that the Nazis um, cannot get enough of. Apparently Hartmann and Beckman had viewed this art together in Frankfurt. Descent from the Cross, quote, presents an unflinching look at bodily suffering, a timely topic in the midst of a seemingly never-ending war. Multiple perspectives are combined to focus the eye on Jesus's oversized corpse, his pale flesh covered in bruises and sores, with coagulated blood pooling around the gaping black holes of the stigmata. Those are the holes in his hands, feet, and side. His emaciated arms stretch across the picture and in their rigor mortis still mirror the shape of the cross. Beckman thinly and precisely applied paint in cold, restrained hues, in contrast to his exuberant brushwork for his pre-war canvases. Descent from the Cross was bequeathed to the MoMA in 1955 by Kurt Valentin, that German-born Jewish art dealer um, who sold many of the degenerate works um, stateside. Ultimately, Beckman had about 500 to 700 of his artworks removed from German museums. On July 19th, the day that the defamatory degenerate art exhibition opened, Beckman left Germany forever, going first to the Netherlands and then to the United States. He never set foot on German soil again. He took his family to Amsterdam for the duration of World War II, and he died in New York in 1950. Next up is artist Otto Dix. He was one of five children of a metalworker father and a poet mother. He studied the decorative arts from 1909 to 1914 and participated in the Dada movement before establishing a new style known as New Objectivity. His work was often a satirical interpretation of German society, women, sex, and war. Dix was an, quote, activist with communist leanings, so his work took on an allegorical yet decidedly anti-Nazi tone in the mid-1930s. 
His anti-war paintings specifically depicted the gruesome reality of trench warfare and the emotionally and physically crippled veterans that it produced. These were denounced as an attack on the honor of the German soldiers and an assault on their heroic memory by the Nazis. Dix was forbidden to exhibit beginning in 1937. His studio in Dresden was searched several times and ultimately over 350 of his works were confiscated by the Nazis. Eight of these were included in the Degenerate Art Exhibition. Dix was imprisoned by the Gestapo in 1939. He was impressed into the Volkssturm, the German militia, and there he was taken prisoner by the French. Eventually, they put him to work painting portraits of Charles de Gaulle for propaganda posters. The French released Otto Dix in 1946 when he returned to Dresden. He remained there until 1966, continuing to paint religious allegories and depictions of the suffering that comes with war. He died in southern Germany in 1969 at the age of 78. Finally, and this I think is the most important artist um, that we're going to look at, we have Elfrida Losa Vector. She was born to a middle-class family and left to study at the Royal Arts School in Dresden in 1915. There, she fell in with the artistic circle of expressionists, which included Otto Dix, as well as artists Otto Griebel and Konrad Felixmuller. She joined the Federation of Female Hamburgian Artists and Art Lovers in 1926. Elfrida suffered a nervous breakdown in 1929. The reasons for this um, have been associated with some financial difficulties as well as an unhealthy relationship. Um, she was married to a guy that I don't want to devote any airtime to. She was admitted to the psychiatric hospital in Friedensberger, where she continued to make drawings and to paint watercolors. Many of these depicted her fellow patients. She was released from that hospital stay, uh, but she continued to struggle, and in 1932, her father admitted her to a state psychiatric hospital in Arnsdorf. There, the doctors diagnosed her with schizophrenia. Two years later, she was forcibly sterilized, a result of what would become the Nazis' eugenicist policies. In 1939, the Nazi regime began to systematically murder the mentally and physically disabled throughout the Reich in a program that it termed euthanasia. In 1940, Elfried was relocated to the Perna Sanatorium, located in Sonnenstein Castle in Perna, where on the 31st of July, she was murdered along with the majority of the other residents in what's now known as Action T4. The official cause of her death was listed as pneumonia with myocardial insufficiency, but it is now known pretty much for sure that she was gassed to death. In the years 1940 and 41, a total of 13,720 mainly mentally ill or disabled people were gassed by the Nazis in this institution alone, which was formerly well known for its humanity, its humanistic traditions of care. Elfried's story serves as a powerful reminder of the painful human realities that hide behind a term that was intentionally um, billed as a bureaucratic distinction, this degenerate art. I wanted to end with her story as an example of the horrific consequences that lay behind the gateway of labeling something degenerate. I, I have a self-portrait that she did over on the Instagram that I would encourage you to go check out. Because the term that was weaponized against Elfried and 
countless artists like her um, being inextricably linked with the worldview at the heart of the Nazi mindset, the comparison of modernist art with mental degeneration resonated with many art lovers of the time and, as we've seen, um, even today, without them even realizing that it was linked to this ideology. Or, perhaps worse, um, using it as a shield to cover up the fact that this ideology was one that they maybe covertly agreed with. For example, a contemporary U.S. critic at the time commented that there are probably plenty of people, art lovers, in Boston who will side with Hitler in this particular purge of the art world. As Heinrich Heine, the German poet, once poignantly remarked, wherever they burn books, they will in the end burn human beings too. When you hear the term degenerate being deployed when it comes to the arts and culture, pay attention. This is your challenge from here on out, right? To think not just about the art and culture that's being discussed, whether it's in terms of the past or the present, but also think carefully about where this leads us, the, the slippery slope that eventually becomes a landslide in the case of the Nazis, um, but, but concerning the persecution of the artists who are behind that culture. Whew, all right, we did it. <laughs> That's going to be all for me today. Um, I, I need to have a big old emotional release after recording this, um, and I urge you to do the same. Thank you so much for listening. Before you go, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It, it really does help get the show, and in, in this instance, a very important message, I think, in front of new listeners. If you're interested in supporting further, I am on Patreon at patreon.com slash mata underscore of underscore fact. Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram, that's at Art of History Podcast, on TikTok at Art of History Pod, or on Twitter at Art Historic Pod. And for myself, I continue to make royal history videos over on TikTok at Mata underscore of underscore fact. As always, if you have any comments or questions about this week's episode, um, or about what you would like to hear next, I would love to hear from you. You can reach out on the Instagram or shoot me an email at artofhistorypod at gmail.com. That's probably the best way. Once again, thank you for listening and I'll see you in the next one. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.